You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning. morning. Yes, I did that in the early service. I got nothing. So (laughs) good morning. Welcome to the Field Church. Uh, If you're new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Pastor Chad Wiles and I'm thankful to be here. I'm one of the lead pastors. And um, if you've been with us over the past, you know, few months to a year, you know, we've been walking through the book of Luke. And if you're like for the year, well, yes, we have done that. And uh, we do that on purpose because we know Here at the Field Church, we know that our greatest thing that we can do is to expose you to the Word of God and to help you see what God has to say through His Word and to be lovers of the Word of God. And Pastor Sam and his leadership, being our every week teaching pastor, has done such a great job of helping us see and know who God is through the book of Luke. And it's been such a rich journey, and I'm excited to see what we have in the the year 2020 through the book of Luke. And so thankful for Pastor Sam and doing that and give him a, a hand. I get a chance to do this every once in a while. Yeah. I'm a little biased, but I don't think anybody does it better. And so for me, I get a chance. I'm, I oversee our biblical counseling here and our discipleship here at the Field Church. And so I get to come up here every six to eight weeks, and we do some one-off sermon series about um, the heart and about counseling subjects and how we were designed and created to to apply the scriptures that we see and how they apply to our hearts and how they work out in our everyday life. And so we're going to be doing that today, and we're going to be covering a subject that I've covered a few times briefly in other sermons, but I felt like we need to really exhaust. And this time of year, has it, God just put it on my heart, is this is the perfect time for us to do this. So we're going to be talking about the subject matter of worship today. And so the reason why I feel like this time of year is, is perfect for that is because around the Christmas time, we spend a lot of our days reflecting on the Savior, Jesus. I love this time of year as we, we think about his birth and we think about why Christmas matters and we teach our children and about the Savior and we do Advent and we get all this fun time of spending time together and fellowshipping together around food and gifts and presents and relaxing. And, and now we're coming upon the new year. And we are beginning to make some New Year's resolutions. Anybody a resolutions maker, goal maker? No? Yeah, I see some hands. Don't be lying to me. Right? <laughs> My wife, she's like, yes. When, one of the things that we do every single year, we get to go back around this time. We're actually leaving tomorrow, go back to Kentucky for a few days. And on that long 10-hour drive back to visit my folks on the farm, we like to reflect on the year and the goals we made years prior and how many we accomplished, and usually I have a lot more that I failed at, right? <clears throat> and we start to think about new goals that we want to make for this year, as we think about 2020 and going into this year and why we want to do this. And why do we do things like make goals, make New Year's resolutions? Why do we care about this kind of stuff? Well, it's because we all want to matter. We want our lives to matter. We want to have purpose. We want to, we want to make a mark, and we want to do that, and I want to continue to contend to you today that the reason why we have that motivational drive within, within ourselves to do this 
is because we're created to worship. And so I want us to spend some time today to understand this subject matter of worship because I don't think that we understand it to the extent that we should, and it's really the lifeblood of why we exist. And so before we dive in and jump into our sermon today, let me pray for us. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn there. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And while you're doing that, let me go ahead and pray for us and ask God to be with us in this service as we spend the next little while digging into something I feel like is, and I believe the Bible shows us, is very important. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would be in this room showing us and revealing to us what your word has to say about why we exist, why we're created. And God, let me confess for myself and for all of us that we don't, we don't worship in the way that we should. We don't seek your glory in the way that we should, but God, we want to we wanna do that. And so God, I pray you'd help us today to see how we're designed and how you've created us to be and that we would give you glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in order to understand the subject of worship, we have to go back to the beginning and understand why were we created? Who are we, who are we created to be? Well, the only way to understand that is to go back to the beginning in the creation story. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 tells us this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this is our beginning. This is our origin. This is our creation story. And the thing that God created us to do is, is very important. He created us for one purpose, to be image bearers, to bear the image of God. Look what he says. Let us make man in our image. The Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in our image, after our likeness, to be fruitful and multiply and increase throughout the earth, right? We are to reflect the character and image of God. So to make this more simple, what do image bearers do? Well, image is image. That's really scientific, right? Image is image. That's what the purpose of an image is to do, is to image something else, right? We see this all throughout our world, but let me give you one quick example to, to illustrate the point. If you go into my buddy Pastor Sam's hometown of Chicago to the United Center, there's a statue there. And it's in the image of the greatest basketball player in NBA history. And if you, if you disagree, I'm sorry and I feel sorry for you because you're wrong. <laughs> but that statue is of Michael Jordan, right? And he Anybody who knows what they're talking about knows that he is the greatest basketball player of all time, right? And what do you do when you come and see this statue? What do you think about? Michael Jordan. What do you think about? All the things that he did. He's in a jersey with a basketball in his hand. So you think about that he played basketball. Images show the image of the one they were created to image, right? And so... What God did with man is he created an image of himself, man and woman, 
created in his image. And we do that. Whether we know it or not, it happens. We are the only creation, the only created thing that God gave the privilege to be in his image. And we can't help it. Other creatures or created things don't create things like the Sistine Chapel or the Mona Lisa. Why do we do those kind of things as humans? Because God's creative and a creator, and so we create. Why do we have justice systems? They're not perfect, but because God is just. We image God. We create. We show the image of God even if we don't want to or mean to. Right? And so we are reflectors, and so God to this day and time, has put about seven billion statues of himself all throughout the earth for the purpose of imaging him, being image bearers of God. And so as we think about that, I'm just going to call out the elephant in the room because I thought this thought too. That can feel wrong. Why, like... Doesn't that seem a little selfish? Is God egotistical? Right, if I, if I did that, if I decided, you know what? You know what would be a good idea? If on every street corner in Mandeville I put a statue of Chad Wiles. That would be great. Yeah. I still kind of think it's a good idea, but... No, but what, do you, what would you think of me? He's lost his ever-loving mind. He's went crazy. Why would he do that? He's arrogant. He's egotistical. Right? And so we look at things from our human perspective, but, and that would be true except for one reason. Because God alone deserves to be glorified. Look me back up real quick. God created us for his glory. Devin, back up for me. Isaiah 43, 6-7. I want us to look at this. It says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory. Look, he says, whom I created for my glory. God's plan is to fill the earth with his glory. As we just talked about Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is why we were created, and God is right in telling us that because he alone deserves to be glorified. And so I want to spend just a few minutes proving to you that that is true. I'm going to use just four major attributes of God. There's so many, but I'm just going to cover four. And a little plug, if you want to dig deeper into this, we have a study called Seeing a Splendor that Pastor Sam wrote. It's an excellent study on these four attributes. So if you want to dig deeper, I encourage you to do so. I'm not going to cover it as in-depth as this study was, but I'm just going to hit a few points that I think will convince you today that God alone is deserving of glory. The first one is, God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. My favorite verse that illustrates this point starts in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Why does this show us this? Because we have a creation story. We have a point where we were made by God. God doesn't have that story. God's eternal. God existed before the creation of the world. God is eternally powerful. We sometimes act like children that think that we're the point of the story. I think about my children when I come into their room and they tell me to get out. It's their room. They're four and seven. 
And this thing wells up inside of me like, oh yeah? I'll put you on the street. <laughs> then we'll see, right? But how much more is God like that with us when we say, this is my life, my world, my, and we need to eat, we need to drink, we need to sleep, and if he snapped his fingers, he could take us out in a second. Who are we? But God doesn't have that. God needs nothing. God exists, period. God, when he describes himself to Moses at the burning bush, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh you are? He just says, I am. He says that because that's all you can say about God. I just am. I, am. I always have been. I always will be. I'm the one in control. I created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. The heavens and the earth. When you go out at night and the sky is clear and you look up at the stars, you can't even count them all. In our techn technological advances, we haven't even scraped the surface of understanding the universe. And God created that by speaking. Do I need to say a whole lot more about that he's the one that deserves glory? Probably not, but I'm going to. All right, so Romans 1, 19 through 20. Just to drive this home, he says, Paul says to us, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made... So they are without excuse. Listen, when you sit in awe of a sunset or an ocean or a mountain or the stars, that is all God needs for us to understand that he is to be glorified. That awe comes from him. He created it. So God is all-powerful. Second point, God is holy and set apart. God is holy and set apart. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Ezekiel 38, 23, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. See, God is holy and set apart. We don't even have anything to compare him to. We can barely describe him in the ways that he needs to be described. The, the language that we have falls short in really describing who God is. He is all-powerful. He is holy. Number three, God is perfectly wise. God is perfectly wise. Isaiah 55, 7-9 <clears throat> says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't trust in the wisdom of this world. Because as humans, we can only see things from our perspective, and we can't even see the totality of what God created. Don't trust in the wisdom of the world. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. So when you're tempted in your own way to decide how you should live your life, don't do that. God often calls us to do things that are counterintuitive to our nature, but they are right because God is wise. <clears throat> James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously with, to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We seek the Lord for his wisdom, 
because he is wise. He is all-powerful. He is holy and set apart. He is perfectly wise. And last but not least, God is perfectly good. And I think this is a point that we really need to understand. Along with everything else, God is perfectly good. The reason why he's not egotistical and wanting his glory to be spread is because he is good. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Listen, God's greatest good that he could give us is himself. That's why he's right in asking for his glory to be spread. That's why he's right in saying so. Because it's what's best. It's what's good. All right, John Piper says it this way, and we, we believe in this phrase, which is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We should be satisfied in God. We shouldn't want this world to be about us. That's, that's wrong. It's dangerous. And that's what leads to our brokenness. That's what leads us to choose things that, that, that hurt us. That's why we choose to go to escape into addictions, or that's why we struggle with depression and anxiety. That's why we struggle is because we don't choose the goodness of God. We don't make it about Him. We are not being image bearers like we were created to be. And so we are left purposeless in that way because that is why we are created. So how do we glorify God? Now that we've defined what we're supposed to do and who we were created to be, now we can get to how we do it, which is worship. The action of glorification is worship. See, we have to understand the why before we can understand what to do because we have to do it for the right reason. See, worship is the action of reflecting the glory of the one you love and serve. That's what worship is. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. If we miss the point of being image bearers or the purpose of it, we turn that into a duty instead of what it's meant to be, which is worship from the heart. It's all-encompassing. It's holistic. It's not reduced down to one thing. It's not just singing songs on Sunday or reading your Bible or praying or any of that, which is that's part of it, but it's all of it. I love that Paul uses the mundane tasks of eating and drinking because he's trying to communicate something with using that because... That's what we have to do to survive. If you don't eat or drink, what happens? You're dead. So Paul says, in everything that even you have to do, that seems routine, you can glorify God, and you should. Because when your heart is for the Lord, then everything you do gives God glory, right? So let's take a moment. Let's break this down. I want to define for you practically and biblically, what worship looks like. So we can really understand it. And with each of these points, I've written some questions. I encourage you, if you have uh, the piece of paper, to write some notes and take down and take them with you because maybe over this next week, this will be a good homework practice to utilize these questions to examine your heart, to help you see what are, what are you worshiping as we define this. And so <clears throat> worship practically is, first of all, what we seek. Worship is what we seek. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So worship is played out in what we seek. So a couple questions. What do you seek for joy? 
What do you seek for hope? What do you seek for comfort? Those are just a few. You could add more to that. What do you seek? Worship is what you seek. Worship is also what we serve. Worship is what we serve. 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what things He has done for you. What we serve. So what runs your life? What do you believe that you must do? When you examine your day, day to day, what must you do? This will help you see what you serve. So worship is what we seek, what we serve, what we sacrifice for. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So ask yourself this. What are you willing to drop everything for? What will you deny yourself for? This will really show you what you're willing to sacrifice for. If something comes up, what are you dropping everything to do? This will help you see what you worship. Worship is what we seek, what we, what we serve, what we sacrifice for. It's also what we spend our time and our money on. Worship is what we spend our time and our money on. Matthew 6, 21. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What fills your schedule? When you look at your every single day life, what fills the schedule up? When you look at your budget, what, what do you spend most of your money on? I'm not telling you these things to condemn you. I'm just trying to help you examine your heart faithfully. Because you can't deny it. What you believe is what you do. It's what you worship. And I'm just as guilty. I ask myself these same questions, right? The next one. Worship is what we speak about most. What does Christ say to us in Luke 6.45? says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What are most of your conversations about? When you're not asked questions or made to talk about something, what do you get excited to talk about? I know this could be convicting for all of us. Because there's a lot of times I'd rather talk about the big game that just happened than I would talk about how someone's doing spiritually, or what I read in the scripture, right? What do we talk about most? Here's one that's a little bit convicting because of the world we live in. If I've scrolled through your social media, what would I say that you value? Or what would someone else say that you value? Because that's another way that we communicate now, right? What are you showing the world that you value? What do you talk about most? I'm not saying that you can't post about, you only have to post Bible verses. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if someone just kind of scrolled through for a little while, what conclusion would they come to? Last but not least, worship is what we put our trust in. What do we put our trust in? 
Proverbs 3, 5-6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. So what do you believe you can't live without? Or what are your must-haves in life? If you were to make a list, would God be on that list? You don't have to shake your head yes or no. <laughs> Everybody's like, don't look at me. Um, but we got to ask those questions because this is the most important question we can ask ourselves because this is happening. You are worshiping whether you want to acknowledge it or not. We are created to be image bearers. We, we image what we love and serve. We have to do that. And so with that, do you live your life in such a way that people would understand that Christ is your greatest treasure? Is that what you're communicating? Is that what you believe? Or to the Christian in the room, because I understand, and if you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, I'm thankful you're here, but if you do claim to believe in Jesus Christ, if you are his, would someone watch your life and, and conclude that God is worthy of worship? Or would they think that he's not as important or he's secondary to other things? Once again, not trying to condemn you, just wanting you to examine, because this is good for us. Now, I'll also address the other elephant in the room. You're probably thinking, there's no way I can do that perfectly. You're right. Because there's a war waging within us, a war that is happening because of sin. Because something happened early in Genesis as well. Worship was corrupted at the fall. Worship was corrupted at the fall. We've been talking about worship in terms of the best way, what we should be doing, but we all know that there's a battle that we're waging. There's a war within us where we constantly are trying to deny ourselves, but at the end of the day, we, we still want our own glory. And that's true for all of us, for the Christian and the unbeliever, right? Because worship was corrupted at the fall. Look with, look with me in, in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, in this story, this is representation of Satan, of Lucifer, of a fallen angel who wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything God has made. And he comes in the form of a serpent. And he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? How crafty is that question? He already knows the answer. But he's setting Eve up. And the woman said to the serpent... <coughs> We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a half-truth. And Satan's the best at twisting those little, little truths and making them into lies, Right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, in the, a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, circle that, because that's the key of what happened. When she saw that it was good to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan knew that he couldn't attack Eve 
in the way that he would want. Like, he couldn't come and say, God's not that glorious. It's not true. She never would have fell for it because she, her and Adam had this perfect relationship with God where they walked with him every single day. They saw his glory. They knew that that would be true. He couldn't say the, the garden's not great. This place isn't that great. Uh, it was awesome. Um, and there would be no way to convince her otherwise, I don't believe. But the way that he got her was to make her believe, and we fall for the same thing, that God is holding out. That God is a liar. That he's not good. That's why I said the most important attribute for us to get earlier was his goodness. Because what he convinced her of is he's holding out on you. He's not good. He doesn't want you to be like him. And when she saw, when she believed that she could be like God, she ate. The issue that we all face is that we want to be like God. That's the battle we wage inside of ourselves. We want glory. We want this life to be about us. We want people to sing our praises and, and say how great we were. We want to be successful. We want others to acknowledge that success. It's just not our place. And that doesn't lead to, to glory. It leads to sin and shame and brokenness. And that's what Eve found out, and that's why the Bible says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was a time when, when they walked in perfect harmony, and because of the act that they did in Genesis 3, sin came into the world, and all of us, fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's why we can't perfectly be image bearers, and that's why we don't desire to follow after the Lord. That's why we don't desire for His glory to be made. It's not because He's not good and deserving of it. It's because we sinfully want it for ourselves. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Circle that word death, dead. And I don't have to convince many of us. When we pursue the things that we want to pursue, they always fail. And we experience the slavery of sin, and it feels like death. And this is talking about a spiritual death as well as a physical death. Because it's true. Death came in, one day we will die. But right now, death, hopelessness, joylessness, purposelessness. We feel it. We feel the sting of that death. That's the war that we wage within us. It's in our nature. The pride that we want, the glory that we want, separates us from God. And I just want to speak to the one in this room who maybe you've never come into a relationship with Christ. Ephesians 2 is talking about you. It's talking about all of us at one point. But you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you don't even have the choice in that way. You will serve yourself unless God does something. And what that does is it creates these things called idols. When we worship ourselves, idolatry happens. See, an idol is anything that we make equal to or more important than God with our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Because remember, our definition earlier of worship is worship is the action of reflecting the glory of the one you love and serve. So if that's not God, that's you. And so idolatry is self-worship. 
Idols are all objects of our own self-worship and the pursuit of our own glory. And this battle wages on for the non-Christian and the Christian. We all have the, the potential of making idols because not serving God alone is idolatry. And that's why, God, that's why Paul says whether you eat or drink, right? Saying that everything has the potential for worship, either for God or for ourselves. I'll give you a little illustration just to prove that every little thing, even good things that God creates in our lives and gifts that he gives us can be turned into idols. So my son started playing basketball. He's six. First year they're allowed to play basketball. It's riveting uh, to watch. Um, most games end in a two-to-two tie or two-to-nothing. You know, a lot of shots, a lot of defense that leads, leads to a lot of chaos. And so it's fun, and he's enjoying it, and it's been cool to watch him learn just the basic rules and get out there and play with his buddies. And if anybody knows my son Hudson, I love the kid dearly, but he's a little bit particular. All right? This particular game, I found myself becoming angry because he wanted to tuck in his jersey. Harmless, right? Except for he couldn't stop tucking and moving and tucking and moving, and the game's going on, and the ball's being passed by him, and he's tucking and moving, <laughs> tucking and moving. He's like running down the court, messing with his shirt, and I just, my anger just is rising, <laughs> rising. I'm like, leave the stupid shirt alone, you know? He's like, he looks over at me, and he can see my eyes, which are, are like, what are you doing? And, he's, and then he stops looking at me and tucking and moving and tucking and moving. <laughs> At one point, I'm like, I'm going to make you untuck your shirt, you know, which to him is a punishment. To most is nothing. And I say all that to say because that's such a silly example, right? Who cares? He's six. Nobody's playing good. Nobody knows what to do. Who cares if he's tucking or untucking his shirt? Why am I getting upset? Because he is reflecting me on the court in my mind. Shouldn't be. That sounds very, like, silly, sinful, egotistical. But that's in that moment, as I examine why I'm getting upset, that's why it is. He's my son, representing me. His play represents me. He's not paying attention. He's the kid tucking his shirt. What does that say about me? What does that say about me? That is called idolatry. Who cares? It's okay that I help him see that maybe we shouldn't worry about our shirt. Right, But for me to get angry and upset or embarrassed, that's shameful on me. But that happens because I'm making it into an idol. He's my son. Good gift from God. The Bible has nothing but good things to say about sons and daughters. But we turn good things into God things and they become idols because it was about my glory. And I use that example because it's such an everyday example. It could happen to any of us in any way. But I want us to see that that's, what, that's how worship happens. That's what Paul is trying to teach us. And so, if you are wondering, okay, how do I know? How can I figure out if I have idols? I probably do. How do I know this? Well, a couple questions that might help you examine this. What are you willing to sin in order to gain something? 
If you want something, what am I willing to send in order to get that thing? Or, if I don't get that thing, like in my example, he wasn't playing in the way that I thought he should play. And I sin in response. That shows me that I have idols. It shows me that my heart was not in the proper place. I'm not thinking about God, and I'm not thinking about how to develop my son into someone who loves God. I'm trying to make him into what I want him to be. That's idolatry, right? When we have idols and worship things other than God, we display to the world that God is not worthy of worship. That's what we do. We're created to be image bearers. But unfortunately, we spend most of our lives trying to bear the image of ourselves, and not the one that we were created to bear the image of. And the cost of idolatry is death, as we talked about earlier. Look what Romans 1, 21 through 25 says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things or football teams or children or fill in the blank. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the war that we're waging. When we don't worship God and we give that up, we face death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And we talked about that earlier. This is a spiritual and physical death, separated from God. Remember, the greatest gift that God ever gave us was himself. And because of sin, we were separated from him. And that leads to death. That leads to death currently as well as eternally. For those who are apart from God, spend eternally, eternity in, in a place called hell, apart from God, facing death over and over again with no hope. We're separated from God. But God loved us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 eight. There's hope. There's hope for us because Christ restores us as image bearers. Christ restores us as image bearers. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. One of my favorite verses about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect version of what it looks like to bear the image of God. When we see Christ, we see God. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This passage shows us that, that Christ was the perfect human, the perfect image bearer of Jesus. But through him, all things were created, telling us that he is fully God. He's fully God and fully man. And on the cross, he comes and he bears the sins and the weight of the world. And he dies and he takes the punishment for our sin. For those who are dead in their trespasses may be made alive in Christ. 
through his blood, he says, to reconcile to himself all things on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ restores us to be image bearers. Romans 6.23b, the second part of what we read earlier, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin brings forth death, but Jesus brought about life. And in Christ we get to have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not hopeless. What we were created for, we are can be again restored to because of Jesus Christ. And praise God that he didn't leave us to ourselves, right? But I do want to say this for those of us in this room, and I'm glad you're here, that may not know this truth or may not walk with God. Jesus made a way, but it's on his terms, not yours. Remember, because of sin, we want to have glory. But don't be wise in your own eyes. He gave us this gift, but he gave us the way. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is true that it is a free gift. It is true that he sacrificed, but it's also true that he doesn't accept any other way except through his sacrifice and believing in him. We have to know that. And for many of us, that's a hard pill to swallow, but trust me, he is good, and he is right in saying so, because he is God. And thankfully, God and his word made it clear. Romans 10, 9 through 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Listen, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you mean that, it's not just lip service, that he's Lord, that he rules your life. Lord means Lord, means you don't control your life anymore. You trust him and you follow his way. And you believe in the resurrection, that you believe that that actually happened, that he was fully God, fully man, he was raised from the dead. The Bible is clear. You will be saved. Not I guess, not maybe, but you will be saved. And because of that, the gospel restores our purpose. We have purpose again. Going back to the beginning, the gospel restores our purpose to spread the glory of God, to be image bearers again. But only this way, it's, it's, it's more perfected. Because before there was potential of sin and being broken as in the beginning, but now because of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.14 says you're, you have the promised Holy Spirit, meaning God lives inside of us. And no matter our sin and our shortcomings or our failures, you cannot be taken away from God again. That is a truth that is eternal and always. That's called grace. And that grace is what motivates us to spread the glory of God. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus has his final words with his disciples. This is our last little portion here and we'll be done. But hang in here with me. Because it's not just good enough that we are saved. But we're saved for a purpose. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Or 16 through 20, I should say. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Or make images, you could say. 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our motivation is Christ. He is with us. He has given us all authority. But listen, we are to make disciples. We are to be broken for those around us who do not know this truth. Realizing that sin has broken the reason we were created should motivate us when God restores that through Jesus Christ to give that truth to as many people as possible in compassion. Our job is to bear the image of God throughout all the earth, and that's through making disciples, being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it for his glory and his purposes. The last passage we'll look at, I love how Paul puts this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Praise God. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We were, we were given back the ministry of reconciliation. We were given back our purpose to be image bearers. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, a synonym for image bearer. For Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sins, we talked about earlier, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a joyful task to be fruitful and multiply. It's an honor to be an image bearer. And in Christ we're given that ministry of reconciliation. It's not something to be feared. It's not something to be made lightly of. And if you make light of this, let me just encourage you, you probably have a worship problem. You probably have an idol or two. Because this is what we're given. This should be a joyful task for us. So, let me end how I began. What kind of goals are you going to make this year? What's 2020 going to look like? What are those goals going to be focused on? Who are they going to be about? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, I need this message as much as anyone else. God, I pray that as we think about our hearts and God, if we discover sin and idolatry, which we, we probably will, you give us the courage and the joy to repent, that we would make our lives about you, that what would be said of us is that we see that you are the greatest treasure. And as people watch our lives, whether they agree or disagree, they would know that we are about the glory of God. And that through us, those that are around us who, who need to know you, who are struggling in the slavery of their sin, that we would be those ambassadors that you would speak through. That we would have boldness and courage to share the gospel, to share the truth of your son Jesus and see people made new and share in the same joy and the same grace that we experience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. 
We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.